So uh, this is part three of the judgment part of the series that started when we asked what did John the Baptist actually mean when he said, uh, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And I, I confess, it, it, was, it was a number of months ago that we started that series, and I confess that there was a little cynicism in me when I asked the question, because I was thinking, you know, if, if Jesus took away the sin of the world, why are we still so, why is so much of Christianity and so much of church still so uh, sin-focused and sin-management-focused? We must have missed the emphasis of what he was saying in some way. And uh, and then that, you know, as, as it happens sometimes, one thing leads to another. We had a, a, we had a good look at that. We ran across some uh, inspirational stuff, in my opinion, about N.T. Wright that he taught about being image bearers and the reality of new creation and us having a role in this stuff. Uh, from there, uh, we started looking at expectations about the future, and we did a four-week series on uh, hell and what Jesus was actually talking about when he was talking about. And was it hell? Was it Gehenna? Uh, you know, so we went through all that. For those of you that, that haven't been here, um, you know, if you want to listen to that, that, w- that did get more natural views, uh, than some of our other ones. The, I started the hell series with Welcome to Hell. And, and, uh, so I'm, I probably need to give more thought to sermon titles if we're going to try to <laughs> preach people. That was a good one. Uh, I might just use that one for every sermon and the people will just go, what? I thought that was, uh, anyway. So, uh, working through that, uh, still with a view to the expectation, Lord. Oh, the big, the big thing that'll come up in a review in just a second is the big thing in, uh, in response to the answer of, what did what did Jesus do to take away sin? Was the realization that creation, redemption, uh, the outpouring of of the beginning of the church and the Holy Spirit, Jesus' current rule is from the God who is, who He is. These are all components. These are all things that are done by the God who is Spirit, who is fire, who is light, and who is love. A couple times over there. First John chapter four. So we're, we inevitably, when we were going to talk about the afterlife and we were going to talk about hell, we were going to have to get to issues like judgment, punishment, ages, and stuff like that. So we're still a little bit in the middle of that. Tonight is the third installment on judgment. And uh, I put together reviews for Richard. I see he's not here, but that's okay. It'll benefit us. <laughs> so anyway, yeah, it'll be on tape. So, uh, we're going to look eventually back into the Psalms on the judgments of the Lord. So here's the, the, the review that I'll spend just a minute because I know there's a few of you here that haven't seen this. So these are the little symbols that we created when we were trying to walk our way through how to recognize God in the big events. And so this is the one on the left there with the, the three circles is, is creation. As you might guess, the one on the right with the crown of thorns type thing is about redemption. The Holy Spirit is the outpouring that way. And then this third image is Jesus ruling and reigning currently. So I've got a lot of mileage out of these. It took a long time. I, it was fun to build them. And so I'm just trying to use them for every circumstance possible. But uh, it really does apply to this because um, one thing we looked at, and, just, and, and we'll review it just a little bit, is that Jesus 
said something about judgment that I think is super. I said he said several things about judgment that I think are really critical to understand it. But to me, this is sort of the quintessential foundation. It's in John chapter three, where he said, "This is judgment that light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light." And so, whatever we think about judgment, we have to give place to what Jesus said. We have to, and it's it's the same sort of thing about some other stuff. So anyway. Uh, you'd think that that scripture would come up next, but it doesn't. What comes up next is this scripture in Jeremiah. And this jumped out at us when we were studying about Hades and um, Gehenna and Sheol and all this stuff, but particularly about Gehenna. Because one of the, the areas in scripture where the most information about Gehenna, and that's what Jesus was speaking about in Matthew chapter 10 and Matthew 24 and places like that. He said the the fires of Gehenna and the valley of Gehenna and all this kind of stuff. One of the most dramatic places is in Jeremiah because there's a lot of prophecies about Israel going into exile because of uh, Manasseh's uh, abominations, because of others, uh, Ahab's and so on, um, but particularly those later kings. And then contrasted against Josiah's reforms and Hezekiah's reforms, and particularly Josiah, because he came in as a young man and he was uh, doing a bunch of stuff, uh, tearing down the altars of Baal, making things right with God, very passionate, very much after the heart of the Lord. And he inquired of the priest's wife to go to the Lord and ask if the judgment that had been pronounced by God could be taken back, could be reversed. And God said something interesting, really caught my attention. He says, no. This judgment that I have declared is certain, but because the king is a, is a man after my heart, because he's doing these things, all this, I'm going to hold off on it until after his reign is over. And so I thought, well, that's an interesting deal. You think about it, the dynamics of judgment. Who's in charge of judgment? Well, the one who is spirit, who is fire, who is light, and who is love is in charge of creation, he's in charge of judgment, he's in charge of redemption. And so then, uh, Jeremiah, of course, lived during that time of the uh, of those kings and uh, the up to the time of the Babylonian judgment. And so there's a ton of stuff in there about it. But then there's another really famous prophetic passage in there in Jeremiah 31, just one chapter in front of this one. And if you guys remember, that's the new covenant. I'll make a new covenant. It's one that we actually live under. I mean, he prophesied under the covenant that Jesus said, this is the covenant of my blood. Well, chapter 32 begins, because you can see this is kind of late in chapter 36. Chapter 32 begins with further pronouncement of the judgments that were coming and the exile to Babylon and all this kind of stuff, Jerusalem being desolate. And then Jeremiah was... Just before this, he was prophesying about that and talking about the thing. And and the Lord breaks in to the true prophecies of judgment and says this. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord, God of Israel, concerning the city of which you say, and Jeremiah was just prophesying what the Lord was saying, so it's not like he was saying he wasn't true, of whom you say, it is given into the hand of the king of Babylon by sword, by famine, and by pestilence. Behold, I will gather them out of all the lands to which I have driven them in my anger and my wrath and my great indignation. And I will bring them back to this place and make them dwell in safety. They shall be my people and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me always. And listen to this next phrase. For their own good and the good of their children after them. Wow. 
So for us to envision judgment as an abstract, disconnected penalty or something like that is to completely miss the mark. Judgment has obviously necessary purpose from the heart of God. But the motive of God that governs the heart of God is this one. So let me read that last one again. They shall be my people and I will be their God and I will give them one heart and one way and they may fear me always for their own good and for the good of their children after them. I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from them to do them good and I will put the fear of me in their hearts so that they will not turn away from me. And if you remember the the, the prelude to the prophecy of the new covenant is that even though I was a husband to Israel, they abandoned me. That's why I'm going to make a new covenant with them. God's working on both sides. You know, we've talked a lot about unilateral covenants in various places in, in all of our lives, and if you guys have studied it. And you remember that God was both sides of the covenant with Abraham. Abraham was asleep when it happened. But even in this one where it wasn't unilateral, where there was obligation on the part of Israel, the heart of God still took charge of the responsibility for where this was going. And as horrific as the Babylonian exile was, God was with them, and it was temporary from the start. And he was the one. The New Testament version to me of this verse 39 is, God is the one who wills, uh, who uh, um, works in you to will and do according to his good pleasure. We can count on it. So when we think about judgment, this is the quintessential picture of judgment in the history of Israel, the exile to Babylon. Quintessential. And it's everything that the expectation of the Messiah was built on. It's just the bottom line of that. In the very, very midst of the pronouncement of this and the execution of it, God said, this is temporary. I am going to bring you back to safety. I am going to work in your heart for your sake and your children's sake. Uh, to do good to them, and I will put the fear of me in their hearts so they will not turn away from me. I will rejoice over them to do good and will faithfully plant them in this land with all my heart and all my soul. For thus says the Lord, just as I brought all this great disaster on the people, so I am going to bring on them all the good that I am promising. Behind every instance of judgment that God has anything to do with is the underlying motive of creation and redemption and restoration. Now, you know, I don't know how to interpret all that. I don't pretend to, but I know that's real. And I know that if I'm going to think correctly about judgment, I'm going to keep in mind that it's the God who is love, spirit, fire, light, and love that's doing it. So when I see judgment that contain illumination and exposure of our darkness, like Jesus said, this is judgment that lights come in the world, that can be frightening. Men flee from it because they don't want their deeds exposed. But if you just pause a second, it's the very light of God that's performing that judgment. And when you think of the consequences of judgment that are fire, it's the very fire that God is. Yes, Richard. <laughs> yeah, I have to manage, you know, the workflow. Uh, yes, sir. I'm assuming that you believe that all men have this knowledge within them, but they bury it somehow through the knowledge uh, of the knowledge of of well, God said He was going to put that in them. Yeah, put yeah. them, put that in them. So all 
have ha- had that in them. So the, the battle is between individuals is this... Paying attention to it, yeah, recognizing and, it. And then burying it with something I think so. I think so. I mean, I can't guarantee that there's not times of, of darkness or blindness or ignorance that shut that out. I mean, like Paul said that. But yeah, I would say what you're saying is true. Think about it. Paul said in, in Colossians that uh, you were without hope and without God in this world. But he also said that a mystery hidden from ages past that's now revealed is... Christ in you, the hope of glory. Yeah, because some people mm-hmm. think that it's only when you become a, a believer. Right. No, 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 no. That yeah. would be way too narrowing the scope. Yeah. yeah, way too narrowing the scope. Yeah, there's... Well, and again, the reason is because the intense, the uh, purposes of things like this are already in the heart of God. This is not some new thought. This is what motivated creation in the first place. That's what we were looking for. Yeah, Ronnie? What I thought was interesting is the word good is used a bunch of times here. Um, yeah. 39 says, I'll give them one heart and one way that they may fear me always for their own good. And, and for the, the good of, their, good children. of yeah. their children. And then near the bottom of what we're talking about, so I'm going to bring on them all the good yeah. that I have promised yeah. them. Yeah, 41, I'll rejoice over them to do them good and we'll faithfully plan them and then to do them good. So yeah. it seems that in this concept we're looking at for judgment, there's a lot of that. God's goodness is part of it. Yeah. See, I think there's some wisdom. If we could get that and understand that, that goodness is somehow the, the, the standard against, against which the judgment might be necessary or against which the judgment might be played to, to bring it back. Like, for instance, the upside of the exile to Babylon was that Israel began following the Lord again. I mean, you know, and and the direction that they were on was hideous. They were burning their children in the arms of Molech. They were bringing Baal worship items into the Holy of Holies. Everything that they were as a people, they were violating. And so judgment is just necessary. So anyway... uh this is a long review pause to emphasize one point. We will never think correctly about judgment if we believe that it is always simply a reaction to our sin. That is not the way to understand judgment that God has anything to do with. Okay? In simple form, uh, and we, we've done a bunch of word studies on this. You could check those out in previous ones if, you, if you're interested. But in simple forms, judgment in both the Old and New Testament is fundamentally a verdict or a decision, or it is referring to the one who makes such a decision uh, or verdict or judgment. And so judgments can be and often are recorded either positive or negative. It's really important to remember that. The tendency, I think, in Western Christian culture uh, is, is that when we hear the word judgment, we think negative. We think God standing behind kind of the old uh, um, chick track, version where God stands behind the, the bench with no face, a lightning bolt in one hand, a gavel in the other. And, and that's the image that a lot of us grew up with on judgment. Judgment means a decision, positive or negative. Uh, and in fact, the majority, well, I, I haven't done the count really. So I say, it's got to be close to a majority of references to judgment in the Old Testament are in favor and on behalf of Israel or the weak or the poor or the oppressed or the orphans or something. 
many, 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 many judgments are positive in nature. And because of that reality, we got to be careful not to assume either condemnation or acquittal or punishment or reward when we encounter the word judgment. There's a great benefit to not getting sucked into thinking judgment negative, judgment negative, because it just blinds us to what we're reading in the scripture and what we're thinking about. And then the ones doing the judging actually supply a greater clue to the nature and purpose of the judgment. The first mention of judgment, I think, is in Deuteronomy, and it's an admonition to the people that do not do injustice in your judgment. So the foundation of the concept of judgment in the biblical revelation is you're doing something good. You're not doing with partiality. You're not doing it that way. So there's the example we just looked at, which is Jeremiah 32 there. Obviously, even in the midst of that judgment, there was mercy promised, right? And there was return promised more and more and more than they had even capability of understanding. And when you think about the new covenant promise, uh, I will have mercy on their transgressions. I will forgive their transgressions the way Jeremiah said it. And their sins I will remember no more. Everybody will be called my guide. You know, it's just an incredible promise. So much bigger than just a reaction to sin. So much bigger than just a reaction to failure. And then this passage out of Judges chapter 2, verse 11 and 12, this is, uh, this is another one that shows the character of God in judgment. In Judge, uh, Judges 2.11, it makes the horrible declaration, and uh, Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and went after the Baals. And in 13, it was God's response. And God appointed judges over them to deliver the people. Not to, not to criticize, not to judge, to deliver, to set them free from their own evil folly. And so I, 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 that's why I just keep wanting to emphasize let there be room in your thinking about judgment for the heart of the merciful, redemptive heart of God, as, as it was shown in Jesus. Okay, so then we looked at what Jesus specifically said, and here's that passage that I was talking about in John 3. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For the Son did not, or for God did not send the Son into the world so that the world might be saved through him, to judge the world, but so the world might be saved through him. Sorry, I'm trying to kind of rush you there. He who believes in him is not judged, and he who believes, who has not believed has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And then here's the defining statement that I want us all to just give a shot at being sort of the benchmark for what judgment is when we read it elsewhere, because this is straight from the mouth of Jesus. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. And then the point of this judgment is always going to be to separate these two realities or to bring this awareness like you're talking, Richard. Uh, For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifest (laughs) <laughs> as having been wrought in God. And the part that I like emphasizing there that stirs me is it goes a little bit back to what you said, Richard, that there is already stuff inside us that motivates us. So there are people, there are people, hi, hi Don, hi Jeremy, you guys. There are people in this world who are very uh, public figures, politically and so on and so forth, let's say. And they lead and some of them are leading in just absolutely abysmal ways, I think. Horrible ways. Ways to take advantage of their power and of other people. But 
this bottom part speaks to me that that stuff comes from a better version of itself that they were that they possess as image bearers being made in God's image doesn't excuse them for the way they're abusing it but i think we have a right to keep in mind that lord this thing may be twisted but there's still a reality there and i don't know what the implications are i just know it keeps me from being self-satisfied in my own judgment and and you know that that mocking them on twitter is the best exercise i can possibly do you know So anyway, that's what that last part talks about. But just to emphasize that this is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light for their deeds were evil. And if you remember in the prologue to John, this whole light thing is very, very important. Uh, The Logos was with God and his life became the light of men. And the light came to the darkness. The darkness didn't receive it. But it was the light that coming into the world enlightened the heart of every man. So judgment is an intrinsic part of the good news of the gospel, the restoration. All right, and then here's John 12. This is pretty cool. Uh, there's, a, there's a particular focus on judgment that most of us miss, and it's this. Jesus answered and said, this voice has not come for my sake. You remember in John 12, people heard the voice uh, uh, there, and this was after Lazarus was raised and so on and so forth. And this is my son, so on. This voice has not come for my sake, but for your sakes. Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And then he further emphasizes that in John 16, talking about the ministry of the Holy Spirit and the function of the Holy Spirit. Uh, But I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Now, I know that all of you have been in church at one time or another where the assumption of verse 8 stopped at the end of verse 8 and everybody goes, yeah, that means the Holy Spirit's going to convict you of your sin. He's going to convict you of living in an unrighteous life and He's going to convict you that you're going to be judged. Jesus knew that we were deeply committed to that sort of false self-evaluation of the heart of God. So he immediately interpreted what he said. He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness because I go to be with the Father and you no longer see me. And concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is cast down. So the target of judgment the primary target of judgment is the spirit that is behind the darkness. And that's another thing, Richard, that's kind of akin to your question, which is maybe there was a season when the prince of the power of the air actually had enough authority that people couldn't keep from sinning. But that day has passed. That day has passed. I suspect that he did because at the temptation of Jesus, he presented all the kingdoms of the world and Jesus didn't seem to say, well, they're not yours to give. He just rejected it. But now all authority is given to me, right? So we don't have Flip Wilson's, that's really dating me, Flip Wilson's old uh, saying, the devil made me do it. (laughs) 
We don't really have that as an excuse anymore. So the conclusion from Jesus about judgment is that every person's crisis of judgment, and crisis is one of the words for judgment, is simply being confronted with the life that is Jesus' life when he came and now as he lives and as he reigns. So we're all engaged in judgment in this, with his words and with his life. Second, the power behind our love of darkness, the shame and fear of exposure of our evil deeds, which I think is that power, is already cast down. There's already a victory over the thing that caused us to need to be judged. It's already cast down. That ruling, accusing spirit was the first to feel the power of judgment. That is Jesus, and let's welcome the light. And lastly, Jesus is single-minded in uh, about his purpose, and he's saving the cosmos and us. His judgment is a part of that saving process. It is not the consequence or the evaluation mode at the end of that process. The light of Jesus is intrinsic in redemption. Does that make sense? And can you see how different that thinking is if you let that be in your heart? Judgment is not something to be pushed off to the end to be feared. And we're going to look at the end today uh, in John chapter 4 that knowing that we are loved is what prepares us to face judgment. Okay? All right. So we have to change the way we think about this. And that is the review. Now, I will tell you, uh, and you guys know this, if you'd seen the earlier sermons, we went through mespoth and uh, all the Hebrew word for judgment and Greek words and everything. And so when I, I mean, uh, when I was getting into this, I was thinking, okay, I've got to get into the components, you know, like what's justice? What about punishment? What are the consequences of judgment? What, you know, and I tell you, it was one of the hardest things I ever tried to put together. And then I realized, okay, fundamentally, I'm approaching this the wrong way, personally. And I'm approaching it in a way that I have a tendency to do, and that is to analyze the details. And I, I just am so grateful that the Lord gave me even a path to get out of that. And that path is this, to gaze on the beauty of judgment. And so I've got three psalms I want to look at. And uh, I feel partially ill-equipped for this, so Holy Spirit, you do your thing. <laughs> the mic's open. So here's Psalms 19, 7 through 14. And what I want you, as we go through it, to, to think about is how does this reveal the purpose of judgment? The purpose that God has on his heart for this. So first thing I want you to do is look at the bold-faced ones and look where judgment, where, where, what kind of a list of things judgment is in. Okay, The law of the Lord is perfect. The testimony of the Lord is sure. The precepts of the Lord are right. The commandment of the Lord is pure. The fear of the Lord is clean. And the judgments of the Lord are true. For some reason, just highlighting those in my heart takes away the the old programming, the old language about judgment being punitive, about judgment being reactive, about judgment being a negative evaluation at its core. Look at these. The law of the Lord is perfect. The judgments of the Lord are true. 
The testimony of the Lord is sure. The judgments of the Lord are true. The precepts of the Lord are right. The judgment of the Lord is true. The commandment of the Lord is pure. The judgments of the Lord are true. The fear of the Lord is clean. The judgments of the Lord. And look what they produce. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. Testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord, they're righteous altogether. Now, it probably would be illegal for me to say you could swap those things, right, because they're there for a purpose. And I'm not going to try to do that. But I don't think that, I don't think it's too far out of base to say, the set of the restoration of the soul, the wisdom of the simple, the rejoicing of the heart, the enlightening of the eyes, the enduring forever, and righteousness altogether is a part of the package of the law of the Lord, the testimony of the Lord, precepts of the Lord, command of the Lord, fear of the Lord, and judgment. Each of those reveal the heart of the Father. The heart of the Father. Yes, sir. Um, just a, a question of reference, and I don't know this. I usually get into word studies and stuff, but I don't know. Uh, in the Jeremiah passage you had up there, it mentions uh, so that they may fear me, and it says of the fear of the Lord. And in the New Testament, we have perfect love casts out fear. And my question is, is that a different word, or is it a different interaction covenant and covenant with us? Yeah, I don't know. I don't yeah. know. Uh, that would be a, a pretty good study, actually. Uh, I, I know that the, the idea of, of a, a fear, I have to keep going back to Tim's expression. The kind of fear that God is not trying to create is the expectation that he's going to squash you like a grape. That's, that's, uh, that was some of the theology Tim picked up as a youth that he has abandoned since this time. So that's a good question. That's, that's, and, and, and this is a question that's worth looking at. Lord, I want to fear you. The, the fear of the Lord here is enduring forever. What does that mean? Uh, you know, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of understanding. What does that mean? Anyway, it's still a positive, right? Still a positive. All right. So now let's keep going because I want this. I think that this can, in this package in which judgment is included, there are some commentary about that. And I want to read that. I want you to think about it. They are more desired. They, the judgments of the Lord, because it follows right after it, or is it this whole package? I don't care. I don't know that it makes a difference. They are more desirable than gold. Yes, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of a honeycomb. So let me just ask a question. When is the last time you contemplated judgment and your natural thought was, oh, that would be so sweet. Yeah, you're contemplating judgment and you're, the reaction that bubbles up out of your spirits. That would be so sweet, Lord. But I think, I mean, do you think I'm being like nuts? I think that is something, it's an inference we could draw from this, right? Lord, that would be so sweet. Why? Well, because the areas that I'm stuck in unrighteousness would be purged out. The freedom that would come from that. But anyway, I don't think that's, like, totally weird. Okay. Uh, moreover, by them your servant is warned. Now that sounds a little bit more like what we think of good old judgment being, right? A warning 
Although generally speaking, it's too late for warnings when we think of judgment. But by them your servant is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Mm. What is the relationship between judgment and reward? Jesus says, to kind of sum up uh, the book of Revelation, Behold, I'm coming quickly, and my reward is with me. I think reward has a lot bigger role in judgment than we give it credit for. Who can discern his errors? Has anybody ever asked that question about, why can't I figure out what I'm doing wrong? Acquit me of hidden faults. Lord, search me. See if there's any twisted way in me. Also, keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I will be blameless and I shall be acquitted of great transgressions. That's beautiful stuff. What a promise. And judgment is part of the stuff that guarantees that. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Let me tell you, in the ignorance of my biblical interpretation when I was younger and until recently, verse 14, I took on as a duty to avoid judgment. Not that God would be back to the Jeremiah passage, hey, I'm going to put stuff in your heart for me. I'm going to put the fear of me in your heart for you and for your children. Anyway, do you see what I'm saying? I think this gives us permission to think differently about judgment. And I'm not saying that there's not some Nasty stuff associated with judgment, because there is, believe me. Babylonian exile was one of those things. The uh, destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in AD 70 was one of those things. All right, here's the second one. Psalms 36, 5 through 9. Think about reach and scope. Last time we looked at purpose. What was the purpose of judgment? Now, what's the reach and scope? We've got a little uh, shorter set of this. Your loving kindness, O Lord, your faithfulness, your righteousness, and your your judgments. That's the set we're talking about, right? Your loving kindness, O Lord, extends to the heaven. Your faithfulness reaches to the skies. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God, and your judgments are like a great deep. You see the scope? You see the grandeur of the picture of these things? O Lord, you preserve man and beast. How precious is your loving kindness, O God. And the children of men take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They drink their fullness, their fill, in the abundance of your house, and you give them to drink in the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. And I thought this was interesting. In your light, we see light. Not only is the scope of judgment pretty much all-inclusive in, in this picturesque language, but in your light, we see light. Does judgment have the ability to open our eyes? I think if you go back to the previous one, yes. Keep back your servant from presumptuous sin. What is presumptuous sin besides sin done seeing things wrongly? Anyway, I thought it was cool.
in your light, we see light. Judgment is usually thought of as sweeping in impact, but super narrowly focused, meaning I'm going to stand before the Lord. You're going to stand before the Lord. And he's going to see all the yuck and expose all the yuck. But even if we go back to where Jesus was talking about it in John chapter 3, the purpose of coming to the light, which I presume is the same as the purpose of being dragged before the light or brought before the light, is so that our deeds can be exposed and the source of those things can be shown to have been rotten God. And is that possible even in very twisted versions of that? I think it might be. I think it helps that God is not only light but fire. Because that chaff and those shells around us, he's he's not short of the resource to undo them. But they're not seen until judgment is manifest as light. Any thoughts on that one before I go on? Nope. Okay. Psalm 103. The Lord performs righteous deeds and judgments for all who are oppressed. So this backs up my thought that the majority of the manifestations of judgment are in favor of someone. Because in the creepy world in which we live, do you think there are more people oppressing or more people being oppressed? I think it's got to be being oppressed because the rich, the famous, the powerful, the corrupt, there's a bunch of us or them, depending on where you put yourself in that category. But the people that get left out, that get abused, that get taken advantage of are infinitely more. And here's what it says. The Lord performs righteous deeds in judgment for all who are oppressed. I don't know how that works out. I don't know how to see that yet. I don't know how to look at the oppressed nature of places. I don't know how to look at Haiti and see that. I don't know how to look at Venezuela and see that. I don't know how to look at the United States and see that. But I'm willing to believe that what the psalmist was saying is true. Because it lines up with the heart of God. And about a million other scriptures that talk about him doing that. The Lord performs righteous deeds. So I'm talking here about the nature of, of judgment. It's advocacy, mostly. And even when God is coming against something in me that is darkness, it is being an advocate for his destiny in my life. He knows I can't dig myself out of darkness. I just can't do it. Because if I could see it, I would. And the nature of darkness is you can't see it. And you can't see in it. So he is the one. Back to that passage in Jeremiah, the reason I stuck on that so long. I will do this stuff in you for your good. Well, that's judgment that's sweeter than honey. So the Lord performs righteous deeds and judgments for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the sons of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. Isn't it interesting that the psalmist was quoting God's answer to Moses when he said, show me your glory. And he said, I'll cause my goodness to pass before you. 
slow to anger, abounding in kindness. Had you ever thought of that as judgment? Had you ever thought that God was saying, I'm the one who's going to be able to judge you into righteousness, into your destiny? I think that's freaking amazing. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. I mean, isn't that a picture of the new covenant? Isn't that a picture of Christianity right now? Has God dealt with you according to your sins? No. We make our sins the centerpiece of redemption. He makes our redemption the centerpiece of redemption. He makes our destiny, our calling, our purpose, our image-bearing status the point of redemption. And if we're going to understand it, and more importantly, if we're going to carry it and reflect it and release it. Oh, I can't believe I left that scripture off. I just realized that was a mistake. I'll get to it. He's the one that's going to have to keep his eye on the ball. Because we have a tendency to keep ours on the hole in the bag. That causes us to think we lost the ball in the first place. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us, just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those that fear him. And this is a verse, well, it's beautiful, just to finish this one out, for he himself knows our frame. He is mindful we are but dust. When I was looking at this, I was thinking, okay, I want my mind to change about judgment, about your heart for me, about, about how I feel about my own failures and stuff. Not only does it help to realize that the God who is spirit, fire, light, love, and love is the source of judgment, but that the God who is spirit, fire, light, love, and love is our Father. Not in some kind of adoptive duty that we obligated Him to when we said the sinner's prayer, He has conceived of himself as our father and us as his children from the beginning. Jesus didn't wait for anybody to say the sinner's prayer to start saying, your father, your father, your father, your father, your father. He was revealing the the your father, the our father. The first thing he said, the first command he gave to Mary after the resurrection, remember? Go tell my brothers that I am going to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. That's what this is saying. Just as the Father. So, if we're going to think about judgment, we should not think about it the way Brother Chick drew it. He's not sitting behind a bench. He's not hiding his face from us. He's not poised to... uh, Like Jonathan Edwards said, an arrow drawn, ready to be released into your heart. He is your father. He may have to wipe away some tears from his own eyes over the pain that you've caused yourself. And he may not rejoice over the judgment. He may even be to the place where in the midst of the inevitability of it, because he loves us too much to not shine the light on the things that destroy us, He might break in in his thinking or through somebody that's ministering to us. 
like he did to Jeremiah and say, now, yeah, this city that's going to Babylon that you say, yeah, well, I'm going to bring him back, though. You're going, but I'm going to bring you back. This is just, it's a father. It is our father who is the author of the judgments that we face. That means way more than we know. And then 14, for he himself knows our frame. I think that's interesting. Why the double? Well, because he could know our frames without knowing our weakness himself. But Jesus ended that possibility for God forever. Because he took it on himself. I think this is a prophetic reference to the incarnation. He himself knows our frame. Kind of makes you think about it. Right? This is the nature. This is where judgment is coming from. So, closing out, we've come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. Now, because I'm talking about this in connection with judgment, because it's in the next verse, I don't, I just want to make this disclaimer, and I want you to be able to use this too. People and your own self will accuse you of going light on sin, of going, you know, watering judgment down. All you talk about is love. Do not allow that internal or external accusation dissuade you from the truth of what is said here. By this, love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. He himself knows our frame. And there's something about him coming down to us and us being lifted up into him. And in John 14, where he says, in that day you will know that I am in my Father. And you are in me and I am in you. This is the context of judgment. Union with Christ. Christ's union with us in our flesh. He who knew no sin made sin for us. That we might become the righteousness of God. How are we going to become the righteousness of God? Because the light that is judgment is going to be released from the heart of a loving father. Well, technically from the heart of Jesus. He said the father's judging no one. (laughs) But the light that is judgment is going to make us, plant in us everything we need, clean from us everything we don't need, purge from us everything that has corrupted us. It's awesome. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment. And the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And in this uh, and this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. Let's just do our part. Love one another, 
Trust the mercy, grace, and power of God's judgment. Don't let the enemy and don't let your your own conscience looking for a whipping turn it into something that God is not doing with it. Let it have its way. Let him have its way. And let's think differently about judgment. Oh, this is that thing here. So what is judgment? I forgot to put this on here. So this is my next best step at it. Judgment is our God and Father revealed in Jesus, whose life is the light enlightening the heart of every man, manifesting in our darkness, in our darkness, to bring about all God intends for us and for every man. That is a long-winded definition, but I think it's more accurate than most of the ones I've carried of judgment most of my life. So I'll, uh, I'll come back to this if you guys have any questions. But if you do, let's go ahead and pop them out, and then we'll get, get them up here. There's a mic. Yes, sir. Talking about the judgment, and uh, I see that there's a context of the judgment what you are talking about is the, the context of us as God's people, you know, his, his children, uh-huh. father and the son, father, daughter. And there's also the other judgment that the word talks about, the judgment on the world uh-huh. who don't know God, who are opposed to God, who hate God in all the list that God gives there. Um, analogy that came to my mind is like there's a judge sitting on uh, in the courtroom, the judge and sitting at the desk, and all of a sudden, uh, his son or daughter comes running and sits on his lap, and uh, he puts his arms around and enjoys, uh, I mean, the, the child is oblivious to what's going on, where there's a case of the accused and the accuser, and they're fighting it out in front of the judge, mm-hmm. which ultimately is going to give a verdict at that moment. So, so when you're talking about the judgment, there is a judgment on the world, is that uh, correct to say, where there is a fear in judgment for the people who hate God, who don't know God, you know, as the scripture says. And then for us, we are passed from judgment into life. So for us, all the, the beauty of enjoying God as a father and his presence is so real even from now on into eternity when there's going to be a judgment on the world that does not know God. Um, I understand what you're saying. You can stay there for a second. I understand what you're saying. Um, I am looking for something. What's the scripture? It's in John chapter, I think it's in John chapter 12. I had it on the previous PowerPoint. I took it off today. Okay, so I'll just say this, Isaac. I don't think that I don't think that we have two gods like that, like I used to think when I thought the way that you just talked about. I, I, there's, there's definitely manifestations of judgment and criteria for judgment that is going to apply differently to different people. But I, I believe that all judgment comes out of the heart of the same God. And that, yes, believing is important. And, uh, you know, it, it's that same kind of dichotomy that I mentioned when I said, Paul said, 
you know, you were without hope and without God in the world, but that this mystery preceded you being without hope and without God, and that is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So I would encourage you to hold that thought and kind of hold it loosely for a little bit, and then go back and reread some of the judgment passages and judgment issues, even the ones that seem like they're harsh and, you know. So the the thing I was looking for in John 12 is uh, where... Maybe it wasn't John 12. Anyway, sorry. It's where Jesus said, uh, I didn't come to judge the world, the cosmos. Mm-hmm. I came to save it. And even if you hear my sayings and don't do them, I'm not going to judge you. It's going to be my word that judges you. So it's not like God is taking a special active role in an entirely different mode to judge his children. First of all, I don't know that he doesn't see everyone as his children. I don't believe, I don't believe that that happens when we believe. I think that's in the John chapter three, if I'm right, in the, the verse that you said, is that the, <clears throat> for God so loved the world that whoever believes in him became, you know, yeah. for he did not come to judge the world, the chapter 317 says, right? Yeah, to save it, but this is a different one. It's a different verse. It's where, where he's talking specifically about the cosmos. I didn't come to judge the cosmos, but to save it. So we'll talk about it more. I, I, I can't, I can't pull it great out. I just would encourage you to ask the Lord, Lord, is your heart different towards the world than it is towards your children? And I know a lot of people believe it's diametrically different. And I believe that God has a chance to love us a lot more as his children. Mm-hmm. That, that he may be restricted from when we're in rebellion, but, or ignorant or whatever. But just ask and see what he says. Yeah, That's I, how. I'm trying to figure out what's the, you know, what's the difference between the people who don't know the Lord, who don't love the Lord, and us. Because I'm, right now, I'm going through this very issue in, uh, in my context of my, all my friends in India. Yeah, sure. You know, I just sharing a little bit. Some of the friends in my school, they are the ones who are killing Christians. I mean, for the party, the people who are killing Christians, they're, yeah. they're burning churches, even last two weeks ago, you know, and, uh, but at the same time, uh, they know I'm the, one of the two Christians in the whole group, but I share the word of God, I said, the messages of God, and those few people out of them, you know, they're so incensed, mad that you're even talking about God sure. trying to convert us and all those things. Yeah. But the majority of other people, sometimes they private message me and said, so beautiful. I didn't know right. that, uh, first Corinthians 13 talks about the love of God so yeah. much. I just, I just would encourage you to, to not assume a, a, a dichotomy, a dualism there in, in the heart of God. Now from people, yes, we're all, you know, we, we can be entrenched in our thing, but we'll talk about it more. Yeah. Talk about it more. Greg? Uh, I just saw an interesting, your, your visual of Psalm 103, I never quite saw it put that way. He himself knows our frame. Uh-huh. And it reminded me of John 22, 8 in the old King James, where Isaac was looking for, he said, here's the wood, here's the fire, whereas the lamb and Abraham in the old King James language says it this way, God he, will provide himself yeah. a lamb. Oh, yeah. and I just thought it was a really interesting cross. Praise God. That's cool. Let's go. Thanks, Richard. Thank you, guys.